Good morning. It's great to be here. And a real privilege to um, speak on this topic this morning. It's the first time I've been asked to speak on the subject of generosity. And um, I am sort of tempted to start out by saying, Houston, we have a problem. Because um, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, and I don't mean to start out in a negative way, but in my uh, reading and studying of the Bible, I noticed that there's a chapter missing in the Bible. The story begins with a spectacular, jaw-dropping account of God in creative action. He's calling a spectacular world into being. He's launching his kingdom on earth. He's designating his male and female image bearers to be his A-team. You know, it's sort of like the story begins with the spectacular fireworks extravaganza that happens at the end, only this is how it's happening in the beginning of God's story. God's character is being put on display, and we are discovering that one of the first messages in the Bible is that our God is a generous God. He creates this world that is packed with resources, enough to sustain the whole human race. There are endless opportunities to explore, to learn, to cultivate, to develop, to create. And in an act of staggering generosity, God stamps his image on us. Male and female are his A-team to get the job done. We are deployed as his representatives in this world. We are supposed to be reflections of who he is. We are to speak and act on his behalf. And he has wired generosity into our DNA. Generosity isn't only about wealth. It is really about what it means to be truly human. But you know, this missing chapter happens because before we have an opportunity to see a single moment of image bearer living, unfallen image bearer living, an enemy invades. God's image bearers revolt and everything collapses. They are cut off from their creator, and that is the story of the human race, and they are divided from one another, and a terrible darkness engulfs the planet. And we are left to sort through the ruins to try to figure out what it was God had in mind for us. And here's the problem. Jesus calls us to a kingdom that is not of this world. Not a kinder, gentler version of the way the world does things, but a radically different 
gospel way of living. A way that is true to Jesus but utterly foreign to the world and to us. In a fallen world where human relationships sink to appalling lows and where our most basic instinct is to look out for number one, we need that missing chapter. If the references that we have for defining our terms, for defining things like generosity, if the references that we have are broken references, our conclusions will be broken. In our quest to understand what generosity is all about, we need a lot of help. And God, in his mercy, has given us stories. We're hearing some of those stories this week, but also there are amazing stories in the Bible where God's image is reflected, beamed back from earth to heaven by his image bearers and how they live together and how they live out their calling as reflections of God. And one of my favorites, one of the very best, I think, in the, in the whole Old Testament and a, and a staggering picture of generosity is found in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Traditional interpretations of this book throw us off. We're told that this story is really a romance, that it's a love story between this beautiful damsel in distress. And we embellish this story because it doesn't say she's beautiful. And there's this handsome, rich bachelor, right? who shows up on the scene and they're out there in his field, she's gleaning, and their eyes lock and they fall in love and they get married and she has a baby and it's a boy and they all live happily ever after. And it does start to sound a lot like fairy tales, right? And I've always struggled with this rosy glow that ends the book of Ruth and how do you, how do you communicate that message to people whose lives are broken and where there's all sorts of pain? The Bible isn't teaching fairy tales and the book of Ruth is not a fairy tale. Whenever we open God's word, we need to remind ourselves that if we're going to get to the heart of the message of the Bible, we must remind ourselves that the Bible is not a Western book. It's not an American book. And that as Americans, we are at a terrible disadvantage to understanding the scripture. If we never leave our own culture, if we look with American eyes at the text, read the words on the page and apply them to our own stories. It is an ancient Middle Eastern book. And if we want to understand the Bible, we need to go to this world. It is a patriarchal culture. It is a world where a woman's value and meaning and purpose in life is determined by her connections with men, with her father, with her husband, and especially with her sons. 
It is a world where sons are prized and daughters do not count. Where a woman makes her contribution to the world by bearing sons for her husband. You, count, you, you measure a woman's value by counting the number of her sons. So it is an utter calamity in that world if a woman is barren or if she is widowed because it is a matter of survival to have sons, to have the next generation to perpetuate the family line. And so if a woman doesn't produce sons for her husband or if she is left stranded without any men in her story, she is at risk. And widowhood in that world takes on an entirely different meaning than what it has in our world. A very different story emerges from the book of Ruth when we see it through Middle Eastern eyes. And the first five verses of the book of Ruth take Naomi to ground zero of her own life. The killer verse for Naomi is the fifth verse where it says Naomi was left without her sons and her husband. This is not a fairy tale. This is the story of a female Job. In patriarchal cultures, widows are among the most at-risk people. They are at risk for abuse, poverty, trafficking, and they are utterly powerless. If there is not a man to defend them, anyone can do anything they like to them with impunity. And that is the situation that is faced by Ruth and Naomi. Indians, Indian women today speak for Naomi when they say this is not life. We all died the day our husbands died. The cry that is heard from Naomi in the aftermath of her terrible losses is not overkill. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi's losses set the stage for a powerful and surprising story, a gospel story in the Old Testament before Jesus, and an extraordinary story that redefines our understanding of generosity, redefines it in gospel terms. It is a classic case of the haves and the have-nots, The three characters in this story put those qualities in sharp relief. Three main characters that we talk about in the book of Ruth. The focus is on Naomi. It is Naomi's story that we are looking at. It is a Job story. It is her questions about God that are raised. And if you read the book of Ruth and then you jump over and read the book of Job, it is astonishing the similarities between the two stories. And they even say the same kinds of things in what they're doing. But Naomi is a woman for whom time is running out. 
She's past childbearing years. She's not going to have another start in life. Her life's work, her two sons, has been destroyed. She is just waiting, waiting the clock out. And she goes home, a childless widow. She goes home from Moab to Bethlehem. She is going home to die. She is a Job figure. She is swallowed by grief. She believes, and this is at the heart of the story, that God has turned against her. How many people in our world are feeling like that? She is empty, just a shell of a person. There is no past for her, no present, and no future. And she cannot shake off her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She tries to send her home, but Ruth will not go. And let us not forget that Ruth is a sufferer too. She has been widowed. And before the loss of her husband, she endured 10 long years of infertility. Talk about suffering. And now she comes to Bethlehem as an immigrant, and she is poor. And everybody thinks that this big romance is kicking up. But think again about the patriarchal culture. She is certifiably barren. No man in his right mind would think of her as a potential wife. She will not get any eHarmony matches. She is missing the number one criteria a man will be looking for in a wife. But there is this powerful conversion moment for Ruth where she turns from darkness to light, where she leaves her home, her family, any hope of shelter for her, and she moves to the light. There is no decision to be made between light and darkness. You cannot turn back to the darkness when you have seen the light. And it is a powerful conversion that absolutely changes everything for her. And Ruth becomes a kingdom force to be reckoned with in this story. And she will lead the action. And she will be the person God uses to speak into Naomi's agonized soul. And then there is Boaz. Boaz holds all the cards. He lives on the top rung of the social ladder. He is introduced into the story as a man of valor. I've awarded him the Israeli Medal of Honor. He could well have been a military hero. But he is an extraordinary man. He is a man of power and wealth and resources. He is born into an Israelite family. It's the leading tribe of Judah and the leading family of Judah. He's a blue blood. His grandfather was one of the leaders, the third one down from Moses Aaron. His father was the third. So he's born to a prominent family and tribe, and he's a man of enormous stature when he sets foot out on the biblical stage. 
And here's one thing that may be a little difficult for you to swallow, but I'm totally convinced of it. Boaz is of the same generation as Naomi. Both of them refer to Ruth as my daughter. And um, in the patriarchal culture, there aren't bachelors. You aren't hanging around, just sort of waiting. You, you get married, you, give, you raise up sons for your family. This is a matter of survival. A man like Boaz would not be a man of honor. He would be a man who had disgraced his family if he hadn't married and raised sons. I read of a Palestinian man whose wife could not give birth to any children, and he was desperate. He said, I am nothing in this village without a son. And I believe that Boaz had sons. In the patriarchal culture, Naomi and Ruth are counted out. No one expects anything from them, but they are not counted out by God. And Boaz is in a position of power and traditionally named as the hero of this story. But this is God's story. This is a book about God, and God is the hero of the story. It is a story of God's power to transform lives. It is a story of how God joins his male and female image bearers together as his A-team against all odds, and they advance his kingdom for the world together. God is at work in all three lives, powerfully restoring his image in them and, and changing the world by their generosity. For Ruth, the turning point is on the road from Moab to Bethlehem. This is when she makes the radical decision to turn her back on what appears to be her only future and move to the light and it completely reorients her. She is Yahweh's child, and she will live as one. The girl who arrives in Bethlehem is not the same girl as the one who left Moab. She will live out her fierce commitment to Naomi in radical ways, and she becomes the catalyst for all the action that takes place in the book of Ruth. And her bold actions will impact both Naomi and Boaz. She triggers a chain of generous giving. Naomi believes that God has turned his back on her, that he has become her enemy, that he has no reason to care about her. She's nothing anymore. And God will speak to Naomi through Ruth. When Naomi is feeling most abandoned and forsaken on the road from Moab to Bethlehem, and that is when she cries out against God, she is held in a human embrace and hearing words spoken to her, fierce words of covenant love from her daughter-in-law who is speaking for God. Stop asking me to leave you. I will never leave you. When she is at home, while Ruth is gleaning out in the fields of Bethlehem, and she is feeling depressed, 
and utterly abandoned by God. Ruth is out pressing the limits of the law to glean and feed her mother-in-law. And when Ruth comes home, she does not bring home stories of bruises and tears. She brings home 29 pounds of winnowed barley. It is at least a half, month, a half month's pay for a male harvester in a single day of labor. And that is when Naomi has her turning point, for she realizes that she is not forgotten by God and that he has not forgotten his faithful love to her. And she revives her hope in God, and Naomi becomes a giver, a generous giver. The three stories of the three main characters in the book of Ruth all converge in this spectacular moment, and it happens at the threshing floor. The R rating that we have given to this chapter in the Bible, where we major in the minors, where we obsess over what Ruth is doing when she uncovers the feet of sleeping Boaz, where we become nervous about teaching our children about this part of the Bible, is cheating ourselves of a powerful, powerful display of God's glory and the gospel, one of the most powerful stories of this in the whole Old Testament. God's image bearers are beaming up to heaven an amazing reflection of who God is by how they are acting and relating to one another. It is a loud, loud message of that missing chapter in the Bible. And God does it in bringing together three people where the combinations among the differences between them are absolutely explosive. This is a story that lands in the newspapers every day of what happens when male and female come together and interact, or rich and poor, powerful and powerless, young and old, seasoned believers and new convert, Jew and Arab native-born and immigrant, nitro and glycerin. And yet this is where God forges his image bearers into a blessed alliance for his kingdom. You might think that because Boaz is the one who possesses wealth, that he is the only generous giving, giver in this story. But the Bible's definition of generosity doesn't leave anyone off the hook. And Naomi and Ruth are examples of enormous generosity too. Reassured of God's love for her, Naomi begins to think of Ruth. If life carries on in a normal way, she knows that Ruth will outlive her, that Ruth will end up alone, a childless widow, and an immigrant in Israel. And she wants to protect her. And so she hatches a plan to seek a husband for Ruth. This is not about a baby. She knows her daughter-in-law is barren. 
This is a patriarchal culture. This is where polygamy exists. She's just trying to find a male umbrella that can come over Ruth and protect her. And Boaz is a logical choice. But what Naomi is doing is the widow's might. For Ruth is all she has. And she's giving her up. But Ruth has vowed to care for Naomi. She isn't about to start seeking a husband for herself. She's bent on rescuing Elimelech's dying family. In an act of staggering faith, Ruth, Baron Ruth, goes to this powerful man and volunteers to give birth to a son. She risks enormous humiliation and suffering for herself and possible rejection in what she's doing. If you know anyone or if you've suffered through infertility yourself, you will have some sense of what she's risking in imagining going back into that again. Boaz is a button-down kind of man He is a man of honor and he is in impeccable compliance with Mosaic law. But his encounters with Ruth are utterly life-changing for him. She moves him every time from the letter of the law to its spirit. In the fields where she goes to glean, the letter of the law says, let them glean. You know, Harvest your field and let the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, let them come and pick up the scraps. And Boaz's field is open to gleaners. The letter of the law says, let them glean. The spirit of the law says, feed them. When she comes to him at the threshing floor, and I think this is holy ground here, what happens? But she is again challenging his understanding of two Mosaic laws, two family laws, the Leverett law and the kinsman redeemer law. I think it's easier for us to see how Naomi and Ruth are examples of generosity, but it's a little harder with Boaz. So I wanna give you a little bit of Mosaic law lessons here, just a couple of quick lessons to see how Boaz is making enormous sacrifice too. The first law that she raises with him is the Leverett law. And the Leverett law says if a man dies and he does not have a male heir, his blood brother is to marry the widow and the son that she conceives from this marriage is to take the place of the dead man. So this is how this works. If a, if a man, consider this big green circle, a, a man's estate. If a man has three sons, he will divide his estate four ways. His two younger sons will each inherit a fourth of his estate. And the number one son, the firstborn, gets the double blessing, and so he will inherit half. Now. Let's just say, for example, that son number one dies. Dad has to redraw his estate. Now he's got two sons. He divides it three ways. Son number three now gets a third. 
and son number two gets two-thirds. To impregnate his sister-in-law, for her to give birth to a son, means his inheritance will shrink from two-thirds back to a fourth. You find me an accountant or a financial advisor that would advise somebody to do something like that. And that's why you have men in the Bible who resist this, because it is a call to sacrifice. The gospel, the law of God, is always a call to generosity in sacrificial terms. That's the Leverett Law. It's about an heir. Then you have the Kinsman Redeemer Law, and that's about the land. And that has to do with a relative. You know, if, if you have, let's go back to examples here. Let's say you have two relatives. They each have property that is given to them by God. And one of these relatives falls on hard times. The nearest relative is called upon by this law to take from his estate and siphon it over into his relative's property to build it up. And this is what happens. His estate shrinks. And you have this double whammy that Ruth is presenting to Boaz where she's twisting these laws together where it's about it's about raising up an heir, and it's about siphoning his wealth off onto Elimelech's property. And it is a terrible gamble, <laughs> because if she, gives, if she gives birth to girls or if she can't get pregnant, he's going to double his property. But if she gives birth to a son, it is a losing investment. And the nearer relative spells out the terms when he says, I can't do this, it will ruin me. Before Boaz answers, he has an escape hatch. He's not a blood brother, and he's not the nearest relative, but he gets what she's doing and he's a big enough man that even though he's grown up in Israel, he's been raised on Mosaic law, he can listen to this young Arab new convert and learn from her and change. And before he knows what this nearer relative will do, who has rights to Elimelech's property, he vows that he will do what she asks. Ruth and Boaz marry. And Ruth gives birth to a baby boy. And she makes the ultimate sacrifice because she gives her child to Naomi. And empty Naomi has a son. And Naomi is redeployed by God to raise this little boy on the theology she learned in the school of suffering. And that theology passes from Obed to Jesse to King David. And if you read the Psalms, there are traces of Naomi's theology 
in the Psalms. David passes her teachings on to us. Don't count anyone out for being a generous giver. Don't count anyone out for advancing the kingdom of God. We never know what God will do through people we don't expect to contribute. And Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz are worthy ancestors of Jesus. But you know, God didn't leave us to sort through the ruins, to try to find out what was his vision for us in the beginning and how to define terms like generosity. He gave us that missing chapter. He gave us stories like Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And he also, best of all, gave us Jesus. Jesus is the missing chapter. Jesus is the perfect image bearer. Jesus came at exorbitant cost to reconnect us with our creator so that we can know who we are called to be like, to reconnect us with one another, to restore God's image in us as male and female together and to put us back on mission. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. It is a call to generosity. It is a call to embody and to reflect God's image. It is a call to lay down our lives for others. I can't escape the seriousness of this and the implications that it has for how I live my life. It raises generosity in a whole lot of other terms like justice and mercy and love and grace to a whole new, not of this world, kingdom level. Forget Webster's. <laughs> Let us define our terms by Jesus. We are told and we see it all around us here in this beautiful place that the heavens declare the glory of God. But the place where God wants to see the clearest reflection of himself is in us. People are supposed to taste what God is like by rubbing shoulders with us. We have the privilege of participating in divine revelation. We are communicators of God's character. God's reputation is on the line with how we live our lives. And generosity is a major piece of all of that. We have our work cut out for us, don't we? And I pray that God will, all, will give us all a passion to study that missing chapter, to study Jesus, and to 
imitate what we see in him. May God help us to do that. Thank you.